Amen. And good morning, everybody. So good to see you all. Uh, happy Mother's Day, moms. I had a good conversation with my mom on the way down this morning. She lives over in Tennessee, so we had to do a little remote Happy Mother's Day. But uh, hopefully you all are getting ready for a good day. I realize that um, some of you probably are being taken to lunch today. Is that correct, a couple of you, possibly? Okay, we'll do everything we can to beat the Baptist today to the restaurant, so hang in there with me, all right? So uh, moms kind of exemplify actually the opposite of what we're talking about today, and uh, moms are, are you know, generally, typically, they're so generous and so giving and loving and kind, especially moms who know Jesus, right? Moms who are disciples of Jesus just seem to uh, exude an incredible amount of generosity. We're going to actually kind of look at the flip side of that a little bit today and see how, as we enter once again the text in Nehemiah, we're going to be today in Nehemiah chapter 5, if you want to turn your Bibles there. We are going to spend some time uh, looking at um, how we can really open up our hearts to be a generous people. But we're going to kind of do that uh, maybe maybe looking at the inverse <laughs> when we see a little bit of lack of generosity, but how Nehemiah, the servant of God, responds to that lack of generosity in a way that shows us a wonderful example of uh, what believing in God and trusting God and stewarding the resources of God well, what that can unlock for us as his sons and his daughters. I'm going to throw a name out. Some of you probably recognize this name, Dave Ramsey. Does that ring a bell? Some of you may have benefited from uh, Financial Peace University. Maybe you've listened to his radio uh, show over the years. Um, Delene and I discovered Ramsey's um, philosophy, characteristics of managing wealth well when we were in our 30s. We wish we had discovered it when we were in our 20s. Um, we learned about finances in our 20s um, through what's called a school of hard knocks. You understand what that's like, some of you. Um, my mom and dad didn't really teach me a lot about budgeting, and there was a reason for that. They never had a budget, because uh, when you don't have money, you don't need a budget, right? So some of you may be familiar with that as well. And so we uh, did learn a lot uh, about debt. Um, I would refer to us in some ways as unfortunate experts. Can I get a no? Yeah, anybody been there, done that? Yeah, we all kind of have some ability to relate to that, right? Uh, so Ramsey actually offers uh, some, some of the top reasons why people stay in debt. And this is straight from his website. Uh, one of the reasons is that we just want to keep up appearances. Uh, you remember the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses? Does that ring a bell? Anybody heard that before? Yeah, that actually kind of came on the scene during um, the time when baby boomers really began to assimilate a lot of wealth in our culture. Except what a lot of us don't know is that the, 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 uh, the Joneses are kind of upside down on their mortgage typically. And, um, you know, that, uh, that lease on the, on the BMW is actually kind of quite high. And they had this uninvited guest named Sally May who lives down in the basement, right? So some of you may know uh, of her know who she is for those of you who have put students through uh, college. Another reason that people stay in debt, Ramsey says, is because they are actually unwilling to sacrifice. And so we sometimes moan and we complain about we don't seem to have enough money at the end of the month, and we may at the same time not be willing to do without some of those streaming channels or that fourth latte in the week or whatever it might be. And so one of the things that he notes is that um, it's important to ask the question, what am I willing to give up? Because if we're not willing to give up some things and make a sacrifice, then we probably are going to stay in this debt cycle. He also says, and this is 
one of the great tragedies possibly is that people just give up hope. They just give up hope. They're just kind of drowning in debt, maybe 40, 50, possibly $60,000 on credit cards, uh, maybe a mortgage that is more than they can afford. And so at times this just gets overwhelming and it's like, all I want to do is just throw in the towel. And he finally says, one of the reasons that people don't get out of debt or the reason they stay in debt is because they just don't know, they don't know how to be out of debt. Um, sometimes people have really, really good intentions, but again, when those balances are just so high, it, it may seem impossible, but, but he makes an assertion on his website and in his books and in his uh, broadcasts that, that it's not impossible. And this is the punchline of why I wanted to share this. He says, all they need is a plan. They need a plan. We talked about that a little bit in this Nehemiah series, the importance of making a plan and working the plan. And later in our assembly, you're going to hear about the fruit of the plan that your shepherds and your search team have been on, buoyed by the prayers of this church and the feedback of this church family over the past many months. But there's still a lot of work to do, and we're going to talk about that today. Ramsey is speaking about the pain that's caused by financial debt. And we're going to talk about that in part today. But there's something that's missing from this list. And that's being in situations where you or others are taken advantage of again and again and again by people who really don't care about how things end up for you. As long as they make a buck... Who cares how it impacts other people? Have you ever been in a situation where that's been the case? Please don't yell out names, okay? Uh, many, many years ago, when Delene and I were younger, we went to a car dealership to buy a car. And um, I'd never done that by myself. So we get in, we find this car that we like, and we're going through the purchasing process, find out what the monthly payment's going to be. We're just about to sign the deal, and the guy in the in the uh, finance office goes, oh, guys, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I just realized I made a mistake. Oh. This is what the payment we thought it was going to be, but actually it's, it's going to be X higher. Because you, know you know why he did this? Because we were young, and he smelled blood in the water, right? Now, I didn't know that at the time. I was extremely gullible, so naive, and I just thought, oh, you poor guy. You made a mistake. That's no big deal. It's just a little bit extra, right? Well, over the course of the car purchase, it actually was quite a bit extra. So here's some advice for you teenagers and college students who maybe one day buying a car. If someone pulls that stuff on you, just get up and walk out, okay? There are millions of cars, right? Millions and millions and millions of cars. Don't fall for it. But I fell for it. I fell for it. Have you ever fallen for it? Anybody else in the room ever fallen for it, right? the really slick salesperson or, or the individual who's like, oh, I can just squeeze a little bit more here. And, and here's what's fascinating about that. That's not just a recent phenomenon. That's been going on for centuries, as we are going to see as we get into the text today. But here's the deal, church. We don't want to be like that, right? We don't want to be those kind of people who take advantage of other people. We want to walk to the beat of a very different drummer. And we want to be people of great generosity. And I think if we'll pay attention to the text today, it'll hopefully, prayerfully help our minds 
and help our hearts be even more aligned with the word of God. By the way, I'm no longer bitter about the car purchase, just every once in a while. So just uh, thought I'd throw that out there. So over the last few weeks, as we have engaged in this Nehemiah study, we've asked a couple of questions. A few weeks back, we asked this question, what do I do when the walls of my life collapse? And then we also followed that up with a couple of weeks later with what do we do as the body of Christ when the walls of someone else's life collapse? Some of the themes that we visited in this Nehemiah series, we talked about and noted how Nehemiah was prayer full and he was also purpose full and that led to him being an individual who was action able, not only for himself, but he, he equipped others to be people of action. And he also made a plan and he, along with fellow believers, worked that plan. Nehemiah did all of these things. He was all of these things and more. In the face of great opposition, if you remember, when it came to their mission, the people, they're, they're bought in, the work is continuing, the wall reaches half its height. We read a few weeks back in Nehemiah 4, 6, they're prayed up, they're purposeful, everybody is contributing, they've made a plan, they're working this plan, but all the while, evil just kind of bides its time. And as we're going to see in our text today, in every situation known to humankind, there are those who take advantage of others, or at least they try to. Let's go to the text, Nehemiah 5, beginning in verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters... Uh, are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still, others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we must subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So in previous chapters, we discover those who do not want the wall rebuilt. These uh, enemies of Judah, you may remember, they use all kinds of lies. They use threats. They use manipulation. What they're trying to do is they're trying to derail God's purposes to restore through Nehemiah's leadership the walls around Jerusalem. However, in this text, we are introduced to a new enemy. And this enemy is from a rather unlikely source. The enemy is poverty. And there are two reasons, two primary reasons why it occurs. The first is this. Judah is cut off from its neighbors due to surrounding hostility. And this is somewhat uh, external. It's somewhat internal, but it is a reality. Because of the hostility that is all around them, they're having a very hard time with commerce, with accessing funds, with affording um, even just the most basic necessities of life. And also, rebuilding and defending a wall involves an incredible amount of time and lots of energy and very high 
cost. In chapter 4, we actually read about this very high cost. You may remember this text. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. And so what we're dealing with here, we're dealing with a bunch of farmers. We're dealing with shepherds. And and if they're going to stay in Jerusalem, then who's going to take care of their farms? Who's going to take care of their flocks? Well, it's a pretty obvious answer, nobody. And if you're a farmer and you can't farm, well, what does that mean? It's not going to work out well for you long term, right? So ironically, the farmers, and this this is quite intriguing, the farmers, they're not angry at Nehemiah. They actually seem to agree with Nehemiah. They think that his measures are appropriate. They're they're bought in. They're going all out. However, they're not at all pleased with their Jewish brothers, and they hold nothing back. They actually express outrage here at their wealthy brothers who are using this current dilemma to get even richer. I want you to notice what they say. Beginning in Nehemiah 5, verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, Nehemiah writes, I was very angry. Now, the outcry of the people here is structured the exact same in the Hebrew language as we see during the Exodus. So the language And the attitude that is present here is the same language and attitude that was present um, during the Exodus in the hearts of the people when they fled Egypt. Pharaoh's bearing down on them just prior to the Red Sea crossing. So in Exodus chapter 14, we read, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. And so, the situation that we read about here in Nehemiah chapter 5, it's, it's, it's serious. And if it's not righted pretty quickly, then it could cost individuals their freedom, but perhaps even more threatening, it could cost a community its, its faith. And I think it helps us understand Nehemiah's response We've already read this, but when I I heard their outcry and these charges, I was really angry. So so why is he angry? With his Jewish brothers who were using their wealth to their personal benefit. Well, in verse 7, we note that these nobles have made loans. And they're charging interest on their brothers and sisters who are sacrificially giving their time and resources to help rebuild the wall. In verse 7 we read, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, you're charging your own people interest. And so I called together a large meeting to deal with them. So I want you to notice Nehemiah's response. The issue is so serious, the Hebrew text actually indicates that he files a lawsuit against the Jewish nobles. They're accused. 
Not in the same sense that we would think about being accused in front of a judge, but, but in this case, they're accused as they stand before a great assembly, those who are suffering under the leadership of these nobles and the officials. So the interest charges are piling up and they're starting to cause a problem. If you think about the debt on the farmer's mortgages and you combine that with their loans to pay their tax bills to the Persian Empire, everything is kind of getting so, uh, so overwhelming. The interest is, is getting so high that the people here are basically at the end of their rope. These debt-ridden people are suffering but it's not just financial suffering. Just think about this. They are building a wall that ultimately will protect those who are taking advantage of them. Isn't that amazing? Things have gotten so bad that they're placing their own children in debt slavery, hoping one day to be able to purchase back their own children. Basically, what's happening here is they are pawning their sons and daughters. I want you to notice in verse 8, I told the nobles and the officials, this is Nehemiah talking, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles, and now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. The nobles kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Now, if we quickly read through this text without taking time to process it, I think we can miss a sad reality that seems to plague the people of God over and over and over again. And this is it. In a time when God's people should come together, they turn on each other. I don't know how many times, just even in my lifetime, that I've seen this happen. And if you go back in the history books, oh, my stars. Nehemiah doesn't stand for the injustice of this situation. The story doesn't stop here. Praise God. The text continues, what you are doing, Nehemiah says, is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And then there's this interesting twist in his leadership testimony. He appeals to how he uses his own wealth as a means to a righteous end. Beginning in verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest, all of us. Let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest that you are charging them. Give it back. 
1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Now, this may be the fastest repentance story in the history of the Bible. We will give it back, they said. Okay? It was a pretty quick turnaround, right? And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. I think sometimes when you're pondering things in silence, right, you go through conviction, and that happens here. Then I, again, Nehemiah talking, I summoned the priest and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And I also, and I love this imagery, I also shook out the folds of my robes and I said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise, so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Hopefully, your new preacher won't have to do this on a Sunday here, okay, because we're not gonna, we're not gonna be that kind of church. We're not gonna be this kind of people. As the whole assembly said, Amen, which means what? What does the word amen mean? You tell me. So be it. So be it. All the whole assembly said, so be it. And they praised the Lord. All the people did as they had promised. Moreover, this is a story that just keeps getting better and better. From the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I had appointed to be their governor in the land, or I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Well, the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people. They took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God... I didn't act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. I think Nehemiah models a really powerful truth here that we would all do well to own in our hearts as believers. And it's this. We really are not free to do with our wealth as we please. Church, we are compelled to do with our wealth as God pleases. And I think that's really clear in the text here. And Nehemiah kind of surprises us. He does that so often as we read through this story. He kind of surprises us with what happened next. In verse 19, he prays, remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. I, I so wish I knew the tone that Nehemiah was using here. Um, is it a sigh? Oh, remember me, God, for all I've done. Is that, is that his tone? Uh, is he weary? Um, is it the, the prayer of a, a pastor? The prayer of a prophet? Is it a little bit of both? I think based on what we know about his character and based on his belief in and 
incredible commitment to the mission of God. It seems to me that this is a prayer for continuing strength and resolve. You know why? Because the inevitable occurs as it always does. More obstacles are on the way. I just want to ask you a question. Isn't that life? Isn't that life? As soon as something really good happens, as soon as you experience the blessing of the Lord, what, what, is, what is inevitable? An obstacle, right? It's just around, the, just around the bend. So then we need a little bit of understanding of how we're going to respond when those obstacles come our way. And with this text as a backdrop, I just, I just want to think out loud for a few more moments. First, what parallels do we find as we think about the opportunities that are before us, before you, as you move forward as a church family? And second, how do we, how do we safeguard against turning on one another? as we work together to fulfill the purposes of God. So a little bit of a closer look. I want to start here by looking at the, um, those who are oppressed. Those who are oppressed. Most of us, I don't think, can relate to the depths of despair that the farmers in this story are experiencing. A lot of us in this room, I'm confident, have been in extremely difficult circumstances, but I'm pretty sure no one in here has had to sell their children in order to survive. Am I right about that? Okay. But that's what's happening here. I, I, I quite frankly struggle to relate to the depths of this experience. And unless you've experienced deep, deep trauma, you probably struggle to relate to what they're experiencing here as well. But that doesn't mean that we can't relate at all we know what it's like when people can help, but they don't. We all know what it's like to be taken advantage of, right? Can I get an oh yeah? So we can relate to those who are oppressed, even if we can't fully appreciate the depths of that oppression in this text we may actually be able to relate a little bit more to those who are the oppressors. We may think, well, I'm glad I'm not like the oppressors in this story. Can you imagine taking advantage of somebody like that when they're in such a difficult spot? And, and sadly, it might be easier for us to adopt these same attitudes than you might think. I was reviewing some articles and some, some sermons when I was doing some work in this, and I actually came across a sermon that was anonymous uh, not attributed to the individual who preached it. I wish I, would, I wish I could find out because I'd actually like to have a deeper conversation with him about this text. But he, he um, asked some pretty tough questions related to this text. He says, have you ever been on a sports team or had children on a sports team where the coach's child was always the starter while other better players rode the bench? It's a tough question, isn't it? Have you ever known someone who found out that their car had serious mechanical problems and then they rushed to the nearest dealership to trade it in, hoping the service department wouldn't figure it out? 
Have you ever been in a situation in your child's school where the child of a parent with a great deal of influence always gets the leading role in the school play? Have you ever known someone who tells lies at work maybe to make a sale or maybe to get a promotion or to get a job that perhaps someone else deserved more? Have you ever known someone who used the private knowledge they had about a friend to damage the reputation of that friend in the eyes of others to their own benefit? Have you ever known someone who uses their influence over the leadership of a church to keep things going just the way they like, even if that means it's not best for the church or the community? So whether we've witnessed it or worse, done it, we generally can relate to the what's in it for me attitude that's displayed in this text. However, there's another attitude that's also on display. And that's the attitude of this great man of faith Nehemiah. So let's contemplate for a moment on how we can imitate, or better yet, own the attitude and faith that we see on display in this passage. Nehemiah was a very wealthy man, spiritually emotionally, mentally, but he was also wealthy by worldly standards, but he refused to use his wealth to take advantage of or manipulate others for his own benefit. Instead, he uses his wealth to bless others. Nehemiah's leadership reveals that wealth isn't the issue. However, it can be a problem, right? Especially if we use it to take advantage of others. He has every right here to receive this food allowance, but he refuses it. Why? Because of the burden that it places on others. So we see another truth here that's worthy of imitation. And that is that Nehemiah doesn't just talk about being a follower of God. He acts like a follower of God. And I think it's his primary motivation for the prayer that he prays in verse 19, when he asks God to remember all the good that he's done for those with whom he partners to fulfill the mission of God. So at the beginning of our lesson, I shared key themes we've covered so far in Nehemiah. Themes that are foundational for rebuilding that which at that time lay in ruins. I also shared some reasons from Dave Ramsey's perspective on why people get into debt. I mentioned that there was something missing from his list, and that is being in situations where others are taken advantage of again and again by people who care nothing about the impact. As long as they make a buck, who cares how it impacts the little guy? I noted that as Christians, we should care, and hopefully we do, and if we can do something about it, we should. And if you're willing to go there as a church, we will. Not just financially, but emotionally, and even more importantly, spiritually, 
as well. So I want to close with a question. What heart and head attitude should we strive for as we work to bless others? I just want to leave you with one example. What heart and head attitude should we strive for as we work to bless others? A couple of years ago, a story went viral on the internet of a woman who returned to Starbucks the day after she had just driven through. She had an apology note and a $50 tip for the barista, the same barista she had snapped at the day before. And this is what she wrote. Greetings, Starbucks barista. Yesterday at your drive-thru, we had a less than cheerful encounter. At no fault of yours, you were out of carriers and you said you couldn't take my empty cup. I was less than understanding and my manner was curt. I need to apologize. The thought, and this is the most powerful line in this note, the thought of leaving a trail of unkindness like that is not the path I want to reflect. Not for you, not for me. You're a young man clearly working hard to build a fortune and you should be commended. Keep your attitude of cheer and hope. Stay hopeful no matter what kind of people cross your path or drive through. Surely God has good blessings in store. You taught this old lady something yesterday about kindness, compassion, and staying humble. I thank you. God bless you today and all your todays, Debbie. I don't know if her last name was Downer or not, but anyway... It was a great note. Now, I'm not suggesting that we start leaving large sums of money at drive throughs but I am suggesting that we learn from somebody else's unfortunate expertise. Church, let's be people who leave a trail of kindness everywhere that we go. And here's the reality. Are people probably going to take advantage of that kindness from time to time? Absolutely. I don't have a doubt in my mind that that's going to happen. However, might there be others who will respond to that kindness and ask, what's the source? Where does that kind of attitude come from? Why did you do that? And that opens the door for a conversation about Jesus. Two weeks from today, we're going to wrap up our Nehemiah series. I want you to know you are in our prayers as you get ready for next weekend. And I pray in the wake of that weekend... There is a generosity. There is a wake of kindness unlike anything this church has ever known. As you're about the good news of Jesus who is the Christ. We're going to share a song together right now. If there's anything we can do to pray for you, if you are in this place this morning and you say, you know what, I am, I am ready to be rid of the spiritual debt of my life and give my life to Jesus and be baptized in this place, have my sins washed away, whatever is on your heart. You can make your way right down here to the front if you want. You could turn to the person that you'll be standing beside here in just a few moments and express your thoughts to them. However you want to respond if you need to, let's stand together and let's sing.